After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Real Love Podcast Series, right here on the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This series features a variety of conversations with some of the world's finest teachers and thinkers, all exploring Sharon's new book, Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Real Love is a field guide for anyone seeking awakened living in the 21st century. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please visit www.BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. So, my guest today is one of my oldest friends and a wonderful teacher and writer, Jack Cornfield. Jack is one of the most well-known meditation teachers in the world. He's a psychologist and founder uh, of two of the largest Buddhist centers and communities in America, the Insight Meditation Society, which we co-founded 41 years ago with Joseph Goldstein, and Spirit Rock Meditation Center in Northern California which he founded around 1987. Is that right, Jack? It was 1987? Yeah. 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 Look at this. Jack's books have sold over a million copies. That's incredible. And yes. have been translated into 21 languages. And thank you for joining me today. I read some statistics somewhere that every book sold is on average read by four people. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of minds. That's fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, when I think about it, it's, of course... As, as you must think about it, too, because your books are so wonderful. Um, I feel like I'm in such a place of privilege because it's really that we become conduits or channels for these beautiful teachings and powerful practices that we learn, and they kind of come through us, and then they get passed on to all these other people. Mm. I, I was looking the other day for your uh, first book, Living Buddhist Masters, which then became Living Dharma. Is that still in print, do you think? I couldn't find it. It is, yeah. Shambhala prints it. And basically, it was Living Buddhist Masters, but unfortunately, all but one of them have died, so it yeah. could be called Dead Buddhist Masters. But yes, it's out there. Okay. Yeah, I wanted to give it to somebody just to show some of the range of different practices, even within one tradition. So I, I understand that 
many people are eager to know how we met, um, which was we met in Boulder, right, at Naropa Institute. Correct. In 1974, that summer that was the first year that Chogyam Trumpa founding Naropa Buddhist University and Ramdas and a whole coterie of teachers came. I had met Chogyam Trumpa um, in the year or two before that in Cambridge together with uh, Ramdas and Danny Goldman and various people um, around the, David McClellan, the chairman of the Department of Psychology at Harvard. Um, and he asked if I would come and teach Theravada Buddhism there. Um, I showed him the manuscript of that I was working on the book you just mentioned and talked about my time as a monk. Um, and he said, oh, we need the living tradition, not just the scholars, so please come. And there I met you and Joseph I'd met previously but didn't know well, who were teaching with uh, Ramdas in that giant 2,000-person course. And we found out we were teaching mostly the same things and became fast friends. Mm -hmm. And then people started to say, to us, would you teach retreats, the kind of things you've learned in Asia, in India and Thailand and Burma? And so we started to do it. And the next thing you know, they said, hey, would you guys, um, don't you think you should have a year-round center instead of just renting <laughs> Boy Scout camps? Oh, and that nun who came and said, yeah, you should talk to the diocese. And the next thing you know, there was the magnificent Insight Meditation Society, which you change the words of the fathers of the blessed sacrament over the door and took the letters and had it say Metta, Metta. Which, is, which now has blessed um, a zillion people who walk through the gates of Insight Meditation Society. It's true. I seem to remember there was this period where um, you were back on the East Coast. Uh, the people who were most ready to be on a board of directors were on the East Coast and Joseph and I maybe were in California or someplace and and every once in a while you would call and you would say, I found the perfect place, it's in Keene, or I found the perfect place, it's in Great Barrington, or I found, it was only when um, we, we had a three-month course scheduled and we couldn't find a place to have it that we uh, ended up in Bucksport, Maine, and that's where that nun came by and said, you should really check out the archdiocese, and, and so we did and ended up in Barry. Yeah, it's also kind of wonderful because when they found out that we were going to use it for meditation and they'd had it on the market for a long time but no one knew what to do knew what to do with a building with a you know 80 or 100 little rooms yeah. and a and a fuel bill when oil was at peaking under president carter um that was a couple hundred thousand dollars a year the church just wanted to unload it and so we had a little bit of money that was given by some very generous Sangha members and friends, not much. And then we went to the Barry uh, Bank to ask to borrow a bit more money for our big investment of $150,000 was the total cost for yeah. an 80 or 90 room building with a tennis court bowling alley and 80 acres of land. Um, and we had 50000 to put down. And they said, oh, sure, we're happy to lend it to you because our initials, the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, were the same as Maharishi Mahesh Yogi of the Beatles fame, the International Meditation Society, and they thought we were with the Beatles somehow, and that, hey, sure, how much money do you want? So somehow serendipity and the Dharma and all those things decided that this beautiful place should happen. And you, Sharon, and I were, were kind of along, smiling, saying, wow, how is this happening? As you yeah. said, all, all done without adult supervision. 
it's kind of amazing and it's still there and yeah yeah it's quite funny um so here we are 41 years later uh it's still there spirit rock is in california and flourishing there are all these uh, urban centers and groups and communities and tapes and apps and books and you know who would have guessed it's kind of a startling moment yes, in time just to look at it yep it's wild how much it's spread we never imagined that we just thought there'd be people a smaller number who really wanted to dive deep into their own bodies and hearts and minds and be transformed by practice or try um, and now it's become mindfulness everywhere just like there's a yoga studio next to the Starbucks on every corner um, the notion of mindfulness and its benefit mindfulness and now hopefully more of compassion from your new book and mm -hmm. other things that are happening is spreading as everybody knows you know through the neuroscience especially and uh, that shows its blessings and benefit into schools and business and clinics and all that and lots thanks to John our other one of our other great friends, John Kabat-Zinn, and all of his work. But from the beginning, you know, I had so much admiration and um, respect for you, Sharon, and for Joseph, for the clarity of your minds, for the depth of your practice and your teaching. I thought, oh, these, you, you two really had beautiful, deep training in India, and you carried it in a way that people could feel it from you from the very mm -hmm. start. Well, thank you. I was, as you know, I was back in uh, Felton, California, not too long ago, in, in the town where we were uh, temporarily renting a place where you taught your very first retreat. That's correct, and you were helping to manage that retreat. It was the Dharma Vihara of Felton that we had, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then um, then I went back to New England, and or maybe it was before that. I don't know, and uh, taught a retreat with. Uh, Joseph out in um, a Boy Scout camp somewhere in Western Massachusetts where Ram Dass and Danny Goldman and Trudy Goodman and John Kabat-Zinn and all, 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 a lot of who, people who are our good friends all came to sit. So for, for both East and West Coast, we had a kind of a beautiful and auspicious beginning. Yeah, and here we are. So this, this is a uh, period in time in which you and I have each just released new books. Yours on freedom, mine on love. Same or different? Oh, exactly. Same or different. How about let's call it Free to Love. That's actually what I wanted for the title of my book. Oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> but, uh, but the publishers at Simon & Schuster said, no time like the present's a better title. So, right. But your book, your book just cuts right to the chase real love <laughs> um, the art of mindful connection it's, it's beautiful thank you and your book is called no time like the present finding freedom love and joy right where you are and i should probably just open it you know with a statement if you want to find love read sharon Salzberg's <laughs> book real love well if you want to find freedom i guess we can just do this all day um <laughs> So what number book is this for you? This is my 10th book. Yeah, I think this is like 15 or something <laughs> like that. It's like like having a very large family, all these children. You've got to remember their names. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, were you... Uh, well, my story about the book... I mean, it's funny. When I wrote Faith, 
that um, went over the time of the attack on 9-11. So it felt like I signed the contract in one world and I was finishing it up and turning it in another world. And uh, my story about this book was that I turned it in last uh, July 31st. it was due August 1st, and I was very late with it, as you know, so I, I say it was like two years late and one day early. And then uh, the main critique I got from the in-house editor was that I hadn't finished the book and that it sort of trailed off in a story or something. And uh, I, of course, thought I had finished the book, and so I tried for months to find a new ending, and I would just, like, stare at the screen, and I'd think, I did end it. I, I can't think of anything else, and... Uh, and then the U.S. presidential election happened, and I finished it in 15 minutes. Oh, it was, yes. Somebody gave me a book party in New York, and uh, this friend was there from New York who had, I had been with in San Diego the day after the election, and he's, we were having dinner, and he said, apparently, my eyes, like, glazed over, and I said, I've got to go. <laughs> and I got up and went and finished the book. So uh, the, more or less the same thing happened to me. I turned my book in last fall. I actually turned it in earlier than that. Um, and it was getting ready to go to galley proofs. Um, the election happened, and I realized I had to add a couple of chapters about mm-hmm. the, the kind of responsibility and courage to stand up for what you believe, to protect what matters, for, um, to stay with your heart's values. So what did you add to your book? What was important to you to put in after the election? Well, uh, what was interesting was that the, almost the whole book was uh, born of one line in a movie. The movie is Dan in real life. Um, and Peter Hedges, who wrote and directed it, wrote this line uh, saying, um, love is not a feeling, it's it's an ability. And... Uh, I use that. I mean, of course, it is also a feeling, and it's the feeling we so often long for, but um, I really emphasize what if we considered love as an ability so that it wasn't really in the hands of someone else to deliver unto us, but really existed inside of us as a potential, and that other people certainly awakened it or enlivened it or enriched it or threatened it or whatever, but basically it was a capacity inside of each of us, and I realized it sort of mapped experiences I'd had, especially in Burma, doing intensive loving-kindness practice where it felt like before then somehow love was kind of like a package. And it was like I could just see the the UPS person standing on my doorstep reading the address and saying, I'm going somewhere else, you know, Uh, in which case I'd be bereft. But once I saw it as inside me, that was a whole different thing. So that that was really the thread throughout the entire book. So what happened after the election was that I wrote, you know, if uh, if love is an ability, isn't it also my responsibility? So I also emphasize that. And I had been saying all along that what I wanted more than anything for years was that no matter what the conversation would be, however adversarial, however difficult, that love would be there somewhere. Um, and that, and then I realized, oh, it's there somewhere if I bring it there, you know that it really is a responsibility. And uh, it's certainly not easy in times when you feel very strongly other people are being harmed or you're being harmed directly and um, with the need to find that parallel track with the very strong need to take a stand and, and act in a way that you feel has integrity and, and reflects what you really care about 
and at the same time to be coming from a place that is more loving and compassionate. It's it's definitely not easy, but it seems um, you know desperately needed. It is. Um, it's desperately needed. I I always tell the you know four lines from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained centered and calm, it was enough. It showed the way for everyone on the boat to survive. And somehow we become, we become that person in the stormy seas in your mm -hmm. book and what you wrote about. And both encourages it as a responsibility, but also it becomes it becomes our gift. We become that one. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, then you say, well, how do you do this? And that's what you write about. And also what I write about here are the skills and the, the capacities to do it. In, um, in No Time Like the Present, um, the part that I added very much like yours, um, you know, I think about this line from Thomas Jefferson where he says, um, one person with courage is a majority. Mm -hmm. That, in fact, we, we have a capacity to embody something like Thich Nhat Hanh's image um, that really affects um, the community and the world and the people around us. Um, and then and I sort of add this thing from Lewis Mumford where he says, um, a person of courage never needs um, weapons, but they may need bail, mm. you know, and mm -hmm. that there's... When you're when you're ready, as Gandhi did, to stand up in some fashion or other and say, "This is really what matters to me on, in this world, um, and I want to bring forth my care to stretch my hand out and mend the part that I can, or to protect what I feel um, are the values of my heart for everyone else around." Um, there's something so empowering about it, and we. We tend to, you know, whether it's think about love or freedom, in America, freedom's like the freedom of individuality, and you talked about love as being a feeling. But when it really is developed, what you write about in your book is the authentic connection that comes. In a sense, as Mother Teresa says, the problem with the most of you is you draw your family circle too small. Mm -hmm. That it's not that it's not just me, but it's but it's all of us. And I think that's that's really true, and it's very um, uh, powerful to see. Well, like if I was going to replace the word love myself with another word, I would say connection. And I don't know what if you have a, another word you would use. I'm not sure. I think connection is great, as you know. Our our beloved current pope used the word tenderness. Oh yeah, that's a nice <laughs> the, word. The, the tenderness revolution. I like that, the yeah, tenderness yeah, revolution. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Which it really means feeling with it. It has love and compassion kind of woven into the same word. It's a kind of um, connective word from the heart. Yeah. Well, nowadays I hear that, you know, if you Google a word, um, many suggested associations will come up based on people's general associations with that term, what they're, what they're searching. So I'm told hmm. that if you Google compassion, compassion fatigue will come up. Hmm. So we, you know, we're, we're kind of tired <laughs> of caring. Yeah. Way, or we yeah. think we are. Well, that's, and you write about it beautifully, and that's one of the mistakes that people make of confusing empathy with compassion. Mm -hmm. um, and the empathy means that we actually feel what someone else is feeling but we can drown in that 
Um, whereas compassion isn't being taken over by another person's feeling, but letting their suffering touch us deeply and then offering what we can as, as, a, as a response. So, so the compassion becomes an action or a verb. Um, and uh, the other thing, I guess, is that people have so much a sense in the English language that compassion means caring for others. And they don't realize that the circle of compassion doesn't go round, isn't complete, isn't whole, unless it includes one other person, which is, as Miss Piggy would say, moi, yeah, <laughs> yourself. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when you ask, is this compassionate, you need to ask, is this compassionate for others, and mm -hmm. is this compassionate for this one here for myself? Mm -hmm. And when you, when you can ask those two questions together, because they're really the same question, um, then you don't have compassion fatigue in the same way. How do you explain it? Uh, kind of like that, that it's a question of balance, you know, that, that empathy and compassion are different and that we certainly need empathy. It can be an icy cold world and often is in this society and we do need empathy, but it's like a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for compassion to arise because you might genuinely have the empathy but then be frightened and want to run away, you might be so exhausted and feel like you have nothing happening inside, you're so kind of emptied out and broken or something that you can't respond, or you might feel really blaming, like I gave you, somebody just told me this the other day uh, in their work, you know, you might think I gave you perfectly good advice six months ago, if you'd only listened, you'd be better <laughs> off, or, um, or you might get into that strange egotistical salvation mode of like, I'm going to fix it, I'm in charge of everything, um, or you might have the compassionate response. And for a while I was trying to school myself not to say compassion, but to say instead the compassionate response, which didn't really work. But um, I think it is one of many possible responses to the genuine experience of, of empathy. And so it's a balance, you know, are we included, as you say, and is wisdom included? You know, there are limits actually in reality to what one can do. No one has, as far as I know, invented the chip that you can implant in someone else's brain and you have the remote control and you can say like, cheer up, you know? It, mm. it sort of doesn't work that way. And so bringing balance in, bringing wisdom in seems really crucial. And the way you teach it and you talk about it as well, um, drawing on the the, the tradition from which it comes is that both loving kindness and compassion are balanced with equanimity or balanced with what you're calling wisdom now um, that in some way you don't want to love to fall mistakenly into attachment and grasping at how it's supposed to be or how someone's supposed to act um, you know nor the compassion to fall into overwhelm so that the, the balance of wisdom comes through equanimity um, and so that, that balance is part of what you also teach in your mm -hmm. work and in your book, yes? Oh yes, certainly. I mean, it's essential, you know. It's, it's not even compassion, you know, otherwise it's just like anguish or something. Yeah. I, I was leading a, um, I had the privilege of leading a, a group for women of color at Alice Walker's for about 10 years. Um, and. Um, it was very accomplished women, a Berkeley professor, or a woman who was the head of the HIV AIDS projects for San Francisco, you know, Alice as a writer.
writer and so forth. And they kind of adopted me. I think I was like their pet. I would come and bring in mm -hmm. some teachings and get to sit in this remarkable women's group. And one day I went to teach um, equanimity practice. Uh, and I thought, well, let's see how this goes. The first part being to reflect on what it means to move through the world with a peaceful heart and to um, see the rising and passing of the turning of seasons and the turning of the, of the galaxies and all things, you know, come and go and civilizations rise and pass. And the same in our life to find some balance in the midst of joy and sorrow and birth and death and gain and loss, which is the natural unfolding. But then I added, as one does in the traditional practice, that other part of equanimity, um, uh, reflecting on, as you directed your wish of, for peace and balance to others, is your happiness and suffering depend on your thoughts and actions and not my wishes for you. So no matter how much you can love people, you can care for them, you can try to help them, but you can't... Um, let go for them. You can't be happy for them. Mm -hmm. You can't. They, they actually have to be the, the, the responsible person for their own life. So I taught that, and I thought they wouldn't like it, like it's, it's somehow there's some, you know, limited spirit in it. Or, and it doesn't mean, you know, it means people with agency. It doesn't mean children who are born in terrible circumstances. But those who can act, um, I thought they would feel that maybe it was not generous in spirit. They loved it. Mm. They said, you, you know, in, in our lives, several people spoke, because we are um, leaders in the community, so many people come to us needing help. And, of course, as, as women of color and intersectionally, um, you know, some were also um, gay or, and, and, and so forth, um, they're part of a number of community, target communities where there's a tremendous amount of suffering in the culture from racism and poverty and, and so forth, um, around them anyway. And people are coming and saying, you know, can you help me? Can you promote my work? Can you and give me some money? Can you, all the things that, that people were desperate, understandably asked for. And they so, said, it's so helpful to have this practice because while we can love and put out our work, um, we too need to take care of ourselves with balance, and we too need to be able to say, your happiness and suffering in the end, we can love you or care for you, depends on your thoughts and actions and not our wishes for you. Mm -hmm. So there is some great relief in the group, yeah. Yeah. actually, to, to learn the practice. That's interesting. And I, now I'm curious, what do you mean by the word freedom? How are you using it? So I'm using it in, in multiple ways, just as love has so many meanings. Um, uh, I'm using it mostly in the meaning of one's spirit being free. And so I say freedom to step outside of time and realize that um, the moment is actually eternity. Eternity isn't somewhere else. Freedom to love, freedom to offer your gifts, freedom to forgive, freedom to start over. Um, uh, freedom to be yourself, to be authentic, freedom beyond yourself, to not just hold yourself somehow separate from the world, but feel you're part of something greater. Um, and I begin with a few little stories. You know, I talk about Nelson Mandela walking out of 27 years of Robben Island prison with so much magnanimity and graciousness and, and compassion. 
um, that he not only changed South Africa as the president, but he changed the imagination of the world. And what it shows is that they can put your body in prison, but no one can imprison your spirit. That wherever you are, what is given to you um, is the capacity to tend your own heart and to find a, a, a freedom of spirit within yourself. Um, and it can be in very personal ways. Um, and I tell the story of my twin brother when we were eight years old. Um, he, uh, we went out, we were living in Buffalo. It was cold, mm -hmm. snowy winter, and you've lived in Buffalo. So yeah, you know, because you went to University there. of Buffalo, you know what it's like. Yeah. Big snowstorm and freezing. So we wrapped up, as kids do, to go out and play in the snow and the wind. And I got out, and I was skinny as a rail. He was much more robust. And I was shivering and freezing. I said, it's so cold, it's so cold. And he looked at me and says, it's not cold. And he took off his hat. And he said, it's not cold. And he took off his scarf. And then he took off his jacket and shirt until he was finally stripped down to the waist, uh, naked, and dancing around the snow saying, it's not cold. You just think so. Um, and we were just laughing hysterically. And there was something in that moment that I remembered for the rest of, I remember for the rest of my life yeah. of a kind of um, freedom of spirit, which was very much his own temperament and nature that he demonstrated. And then I, I think about one more thing. I, you know, so yes, freedom to forgive, freedom to let go, freedom to start over, freedom to direct the energy of your life as you, you wish, freedom beyond all the have-tos and conditions. And then I write about Barbara Widener, who founded Grandmothers for Peace, who says, I began to question what kind of a world I'm leaving for my grandchildren. So I got a sign, a grandmother for peace, and stood on the street corners. Then I joined others kneeling as a human barrier at a munitions factory. I was taken to prison, strip searched, and thrown into a cell something great happened to me. Mm. I realized they couldn't do anything more. I was free. And now Barbara and her organization, Grandmothers for Peace, works in dozens of countries around the world. Um, and so, I, you know, there's both an inner sense of freedom and an outer freedom that we can manifest and stand up for in our lives and in caring, caring for others. Mm. Well, I know, Jack, that you've worked in a lot of really uh, intense communities suffering conflict or trauma. You've done a lot of work over many years doing that. And do you think that introducing love into the conversation or this notion of freedom and responsibility in these larger circles of community has like a different nuance than one-on-one -on -one when somebody's come to a retreat, for example? Um, you know, you write about it so much in your book um, and in, in beautiful ways um, that love also is really a communal activity. And you call it in your subtitle, The Art of Mindful Connection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and so, yes, you can learn the inner art of developing compassion and love. And, um, and these tools are really powerful. As we, you and I know, they really have changed us. And, I actually am more loving, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and you are, of course, my love guru. So I learned a lot from you, from you, Sharon. Thank you, Meta, Meta Queen. Um, but I also know that it flowers really only flowers in community and connection with one another. Um, and it's not so much that I talk about love. I think that it's actually the field of love. Mm 
-hmm. I think that when people go to hear the Dalai Lama, um, they get something from the Tibetan teachings, but they're often so arcane and complex in some parts anyway that none of us know quite what he's talking about, at least in certain parts. Um, And we, of course, respect him as the great Nobel laureate, you know, peace peace um peace laureate and and remarkable public figure but i think that people go first to hear him laugh that he could have a spirit of so much joy in spite of all the kinds of suffering Mm -hmm. that the tibetan people have had and that he's carried in his life um and and that that the dalai lama's laugh somehow shows us that that freedom of spirit but the other thing that i think people go for is the field of love that he's such a, a remarkable um, kind of carrier and exemplar of what it means to live a life based on love. Um, and I think, you know, rather than talking about it, again, when I think about working, you know, with returning vets or gang kids or, mm-hmm. you know, peace work or going to Burma and working with people who are involved in the Buddhist Muslim um, conflicts that have grown there, things like that, I don't think that. A lot of talk about love is the game, but I think creating a field of mm-hmm. respect mm-hmm. and love. And often that love actually has to start with compassion um, because in all the populations that you know kind of you refer to in some way, um, there's been a tremendous amount of pain and trauma in people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, and I tell the story of working with these wonderful guys with Michael Mead and Luis Rodriguez, who was the poet laureate of Los Angeles and an amazing Latino activist and the Mosaic um, Voices and Mosaic Multicultural Foundation for anyone who's listening and wants to look up their wonderful work. And so meeting with kids coming out of, a, you know, street gangs in L.A. and Oakland and Chicago and different places, and they'll sit there and put their hoods up, you know, and say, hey, man, you're going to read us a poem or you know, teach us some meditation. Listen, give us something better than that. We're out on the streets. People have nine millimeters, you know. What are we going to do when somebody's got a, got a weapon? I mean, come on. And then before we can start, we'll do a little ritual, different kinds of rituals. One of the simplest ones is to just light a candle and put it on a table up front and say we can't really begin to talk to one another because there are too many unheard voices and unspoken for people in this room, would you go out in the parking lot and pick up a stone for every young person you know who's been killed and um, place it on this table with a candle and say their name? And so these kids will come in and um, put a stone down. This is for Tito, and this is for RJ, and this is for Homegirl. And pretty soon there's a big pile of stones around the candle and we sit back down and all of a sudden the room has become a different room because it's clear that we're willing to talk about the things that no one will really talk Mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. And that makes a a field of whether it's compassion, some combination of of love and and truth telling and and, um, vulnerability but also integrity that they feel and they say okay now this is a place we can actually have a real conversation so Hmm. i can remember uh i can't remember how many years ago it was it was some years ago at that peacemakers conference in san francisco with the dalai lama and yeah uh, 10 years ago or more yeah Yeah, i think it was more 
And yeah. there were all these kids who had been members of gangs, sort of, in some presentation, they were all lining the aisles. And yes. somebody said to them, uh, if your life has been affected by violence, you know, you've, uh, and maybe even specifically guns, um, raise your hands, and like the sea of hands went up. Yes. You know, and it was such a startling graphic demonstration of, oh, yeah, this is the life people are leading, you know, right here. And that, you know, yeah, that was a group that, that Michael and Louise and I and others mm -hmm. brought in, in with the Dalai Lama. So there's that kind of level of suffering. But then, you know, as people listen, there's, um, there's the suffering that we have in our families when we're talking about compassion and mm -hmm. how we deal with it and so forth. And one of my favorite new books, which is neither yours nor mine, but <laughs> also, also um, I commend, is really beautiful, is Frank Ostasewski's oh, yeah. new book yeah, yeah. <clears throat> called The Five Invitations. He, you know, our friend who founded um, <clears throat> Zen Center Hospice. And there's a story in there about a woman, Jillian, <clears throat> who uh, I, I think somehow was a, a writer or worked in publishing or something like that. And her mother um, began to lose her memory and w had a problem with dementia. So Jillian invited, arranged for her mother to come and live with her in the apartment um, and got a beautiful caregiver to take care of her. Um, and one day Jillian came home and walked into the living room to find her library of books, which she treasured, um, including her Buddhist books and so forth, scattered across the floor. And her mother announced, I'm tired of all these dusty old books. I'm going to give them to my dentist. So you can sort of hear the, the level of mental functioning. Yeah. Um, and Jillian got, became really angry and upset and scolded the caretaker. How could you let this happen? How could you let her do this? And the caretaker, who wasn't caught up in all that drama, said, Madam, today I pack the books up, and tomorrow I will unpack them. Mm. If, if this gives a sense of control to a woman who has lost so much, well then, it's okay with me. It doesn't matter so much. I just love this woman and like being with her. Mm. And you feel in it the the spaciousness of the heart that says, yeah, we're all in it and it's tough. And instead of a kind of response of clinging or, you know, fear or rigidity, uh, you know, and feeling like you would be right, how generous this woman's response is and how much care there is in it. And somehow, so yeah, we can talk about the, the undeclared war in the streets and the violence of the kids that um, are experiencing and and many of us have had great trauma in our life, but also there's the the calling for love in the difficulties of our family, or you know the places that we're closest to, and that becomes a really tender and yet very important place for just what you've written about and just what you're teaching. How beautiful, well, Jack! It's wonderful to even <laughs> somehow strange form to spend some time with you and um, <laughs> talking about such things. So thank you so much. I know you're incredibly oh. busy. Yeah, I have a few more minutes if you want to ask. And, yeah, yeah. Um, tell me what's your favorite part of your book or a favorite part of what you uh, Probably what you my a favorite part of my book. Um, <laughs> uh, there are a few things. One is um, 
I did a lot of uh, crowdsourcing in a way for this book. I talked to a lot of people. I asked for their stories through social media and meeting with groups. And I did these kind of focus groups on love. And um, the uh, there was a part, like, but the first group I did was in New York City. And uh, there was a man who raised his hands and he said, um, most people think of a good relationship as 50-50. My dog and I were 100-100. Hmm. And, you know, years later, I was about to press send. I was in England getting ready to sit a retreat. And hmm. I was about to press send. And I thought, did that story make it in there, like, through all these changes and editings? And I looked and had not. So I quickly added it, and I pressed send. So I love that sense of, like, you know, uh, there also, there's a lot of strictures and kind of, patterns and you know it's got to look a certain way and it's got to be a certain way and um but not really actually uh you know that when we find love in our lives it, it's it's a beautiful thing and um it may not fit you know that particular image that the world holds out to us as imperative and then the last group i did was in barry mm. with staff people and kind of the local community and this guy said to me you know my whole life I thought that the kind of ordinary uh, expected um, you know kind of low level connection uh, is liking somebody but loving somebody that is a rare uh, sublime supreme kind of connection and he said to me you're reversing it and he said, you're saying we can actually love everybody, and we may not like people at all. And I looked at him, and I said, you're right, I am. I am turning it around. So uh, I, I think it's the upside-downness of it that uh, I enjoy the most about my book. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. So what do you say, I mean, I know what I would say, but what do you say when people say, how about there's this, dictator, you know, or this malevolent person or, or, you know, this leader somewhere, how do I do, how do I have loving kindness for somebody like that, you know, Um, I can't imagine that, and how do you Yeah, of course, I mean, I wouldn't want to be glib about it ever, but, you know, um, in fact, somebody said to me, are you telling me that I have to love Stalin, and I said, Stalin, like, who thinks about Stalin anymore? It's like a really old-time dictator, you know? But right. uh, I just go back to the Buddha saying that loving-kindness was the antidote to fear. So what do we mean by love anyway? If we mean giving in or, uh, you know, acceding to someone else's wishes or, or allowing their actions, you know, kind of complacently, then of course it makes no sense. It's ridiculous, but... If we think of it as the as the antidote to fear, that begins to make sense. Uh, yeah, you know, that there's something about connection that doesn't have to violate our our sense of integrity or principle, but it's really uh, gives us another kind of strength that that we actually sorely need. Um, that's yeah, that's beautiful. I I often add to it as well. I say. Um, because these practices like loving kindness and compassion practice um, often use a kind of inner phrase or intention, as most listeners probably know, you know, may you be safe or well or, or those kind of things from loving kindness and held in compassion. And I say I have certain phrases such as, um, 
uh, which are really traditional, and I think of various fig figures, um, the dictators, and you know those who cause a lot of stuff. May you be free from hatred. Mm -hmm. And I picture mm -hmm. them. May you be free from fear. You know. Um, may you be free from 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 greed and ill will. And that I can wish yeah. for anybody. And not only can I wish it. But I wish it with all my heart that yeah, they might yeah. might discover that, and that's really the through line from meta and compassion mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. to whoever it happens to be. Yeah, that's great. Well, now I really do need to go, as do you. Yes. So so uh, this is a pleasure. I hope we uh, continue this pleasure. I'm sure we will. We get I to hope teach so together. Too. We're teaching together with Ramdas in December. No, right? they didn't invite me because you're going. So. Oh no! Trudy said, "Who's going?" Time. I know. Well, oh, I'm sad. I have to it's talk too late. To them. Yeah, it's Come too on. late. I'm already oh, booked. Well. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> I love you, dear. I love you I'm too. So from the first summer at Naropa, thought, "Oh, these are really kind of remarkable people, Sharon and Joseph. Of all those thousands of people gathered, you two felt like the, you know, the most natural." Um, uh, sister and brother in the Dharma, these people, they get it. Oh, God, I want to hang out with them. They're really cool. And now I've had, got, had the privilege for 40-some years. That's so Thank great. You. Well, hopefully I'll see you in L.A. or I'll see you. I'll be in the Bay Area twice in the next month or something. I hope hope I see you soon. Yeah. Bye, dear. Hey, dear. Bye-bye. Love you. Bye. So to learn more about Jack's teaching schedule and to order his new book, No Time Like the Present, please visit jackcornfield.com. Thank you for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. Join us this summer for the Real Love Challenge. To get your copy of Real Love, visit SharonSalzberg.com. May all beings be happy.